Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. And we pray in Jesus' name that you'll bless it. Lord, we come to the book of Philippians knowing that this was spirit-inspired. It's your sacred word. You moved on the Apostle Paul to write these things, not just for the church of his day, but for us today. And now, Lord, we receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save our soul. And, Lord, we pray as a church body right now, if you want us on Channel 27, if you want us going into a television outreach, particularly on a secular station to reach the lost, Lord, make a way. We pray tonight, make a way. In the mighty name of Jesus. Now, can you pray and say, Lord, speak to me. I receive the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, good to see you tonight. Amen. Well, it's summer. A lot of our folks are gone. It's hot out. Uh, but we're doing good this summer. God's with us. Amen? Amen. Now, last time in uh, the second half of chapter 2 of Philippians, we looked at three shining examples that Paul held up for our inspiration. Jesus himself, we don't get any more inspiring than that. Jesus himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. All three of them, he, he points out how they were selfless. Of course, Christ, it goes without saying, but Timothy, who followed Christ, and Epaphroditus as well, uh, they, they modeled selfless, obedient lives that glorified the Father. Now, as we begin chapter 3, Paul first exhorts us with his favorite topic. Everybody say it with me. Rejoicing. Up on the screen, you see it? Let's say it again. Rejoice. That's it. This is the joyful letter. Philippians was written from jail. He's in prison. And yet the whole letter is called the joyful letter because he focuses so much on joy. And here he goes again, starting off chapter 3, verse 1, with rejoicing, rejoicing, rejoicing. Finally, my brethren, or in light of everything I just told you, rejoice in the Lord. For to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now, he is writing from prison, hardly a place of joy. If I were in prison tonight for preaching the gospel, joy would not be coming naturally to me. Right? It would not be coming naturally. It, you'd, I'd have to do the choice to rejoice. I'd have to make the choice to rejoice because it would not be coming naturally. Now, but that's, that's the idea. That's his point. He's teaching us that the ability to rejoice has nothing to do with circumstances. All right? The joy of the Lord is a choice we make by faith when circumstances are difficult, which is most of the time. How many of you have a difficult day about once or twice a year, at least? <laughs> Let's switch it. How many of you have a non-difficult day at least once or twice a year, right? It's more like that, right? But life is difficult. Life is hard. Life is a test. It's a trial. It's never easy, all right? So he says, if you're going to experience the joy of the Lord, you're going to have to make the choice to rejoice. Uh, it's a choice we make by faith. It's at first a decision. And then it becomes a reality. You can control your tongue. You may not feel joy, but you can say, Lord, I praise you. I rejoice in you. You can tell your tongue what to say. 
And once we step out and make the choice to rejoice, the emotion comes later. All right? He tells them that though he is repeating this exhortation all the time, he never gets tired of saying it because it safeguards their faith. That's what he's saying. For you, it is safe. It's safe for you when I'm teaching you to rejoice. Because if you learn to rejoice, it will safeguard your soul, your peace, your joy, your well-being. It'll safeguard you. So I'm going to repeat it, says Paul, and I'm going to keep on repeating it. Even if you get tired of hearing it, I'm not going to get tired of saying it. I want you to, have, to learn how to rejoice. Amen? If they can learn to make the choice to rejoice, it will act as a protector in tough times. And then next he shifts to a warning about false teachers. Do you know how many of the epistles, everybody, are about false teachers? How many of them are about false teachers? Are you aware of it? Most of them deal with false teaching. Most of them do. Now, let me ask you, have have times changed? Is there not as much false teaching as there was back then? No, let me tell you, there's a hundred times more. Because back then, they were dealing with two or three particularly uh, aberrant uh, false teachings. But now there's a hundred of them. There's a hundred of them. There's cults everywhere. It seems like you read about a new cult about every other week. So there's all kinds. So... He says, let me talk to you for a minute about false teachers. Verse 2, I love his bluntness. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Three bewares there. Now, we've all seen the familiar sign in somebody's yard on their fence. Beware of dog. It lets us know we better beware of the dog. I had a neighbor once, though, that put that sign up because they just didn't want anybody getting on their property because the dog was this little Yorkie (laughs) that anybody could have grabbed and walked away with, and he would have licked them on the way. But bottom line is, usually when it says beware of dog, there's a mean Doberman back there or a German shepherd or something that will chew you up for lunch if you go beyond that fence. Now, this is how Paul saw false teachers. They will chew you up. They will damage you, harm you, hurt you, attack you. Beware of dogs. And then he tells us what kind of dogs. Evil workers, the mutilation. That just sounds bad. That sounds like Friday the 13th, part eight. The mutilation. All right. The word translated evil here is from a Greek word meaning depraved or bad. The false teachers Paul is referring to is the mutilation, and it's pointing to those Jewish teachers that insisted Gentile converts had to be circumcised in order to be saved. So they were called the mutilation. Nothing made Paul more righteously angry than people going around teaching you had to mix Old Testament law with New Testament faith in order to be saved. Nothing made him more righteously angry. That's why he wrote emphatically, by grace, you have been saved through what? Faith. Everybody say period. You don't add anything to it. No works can help you be saved. By grace, you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works, circumcision, or anything else 
lest anybody should brag or boast. Well, I got myself saved. Yeah, yeah, the Lord extended grace to me, but I also did some works that helped me to get saved. No, salvation is totally a gift. Totally a gift. And the minute you have to work for something that is a gift, it's no longer a gift. It's something that you earn to get. And you can't earn to get. If I went up to you and handed you a $100 bill and you said, well, I appreciate this gift, but let me go out and do some things for you and come back and then I'll take the 100 Then I say, no, but then it's not a gift. You earned it. But salvation is totally a gift. And it, you just got to receive it. I was talking to somebody this week about Christ. And, and I said, look, there, there's nothing you've got to do to be saved. All you've got to do is receive it. Like a gift, if I handed you that same $100 bill and you reached out and took it, I just gave you a gift and you received it. And you walk away with it saying, thank you for that gift. You, and I say to you, you owe me nothing. You didn't do a thing to earn it. My heart wanted to give you that $100 bill. And so I'm giving it to you by grace and you received it. We gotta get out of our heads, not only that we've got to add to the gift, but then we've got to earn keeping the gift. In other words, if you're saved by grace, you're not kept saved by works. Right? It's a gift. It's a gift. Every day I wake up and say, thank you for the gift of salvation, Lord Jesus. All right? So Paul says, I want you to understand, these Judaizers is what they were called. They're teaching false doctrine to you. There's nothing you've got to mix or mingle or add to the gift of salvation. They're lying to you, and they're distorting and warping and ruining salvation by Christ alone. In fact, Paul goes on to write, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and we don't have any confidence in the flesh. Not any confidence in the flesh meaning there's nothing our flesh can do to get us saved. It isn't the cutting of our bodies that makes us children of God. He says it's worshiping him with our spirits who worship. We're the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. And how do we worship God in the spirit? We've been born again. We have been born again. And that's the true circumcision. In the New Testament, we are circumcised, not in the cutting of the body with a knife, but in the death of Christ as the cutting edge of the cross is brought to bear on our hearts. The old sinful flesh Paul so often talks about in his epistles is cut off, crucified with Jesus on the cross so that our new life in Christ can produce true fruit for God. You know that old song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? If I could sing good, I'd sing it, but I'm not going to grieve you tonight. But it's a song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? That's a great question. You know what? You were there. I was there when they crucified my Lord. My sin put him on the cross. And on the cross, folks, we've got to understand our old man, the flesh, our flesh nature that got us in all of our trouble before we knew Jesus, that flesh was crucified with him. And it's still there. Paul said, what did Paul say? I am crucified with Christ. 
knowing this, that the old man was crucified with Christ. And he said, reckon it true. Everybody say, I reckon. That sounds Texan, but it's also good theology. I reckon it true. I consider it true that my old man, that fleshly nature that so gravitates to sin, that gravitates to grieving God, going against God, lawlessness, immorality, sin, the flesh that ruled us before we were saved. That flesh was hung on the cross with Jesus Christ, and it's still there. It's still there. Now, the devil will come along and say, why don't, you, why don't you come off that cross and live like you used to live? But you need to say to the devil, no, 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 I'm crucified with Christ. I don't come off the cross. The old flesh doesn't come off the cross. I'm crucified, and I'm to reckon it so. So when I get tempted to sin, one of the best responses to the devil is, you're, you're knocking on the wrong door. I'm crucified. My flesh was crucified with Christ, and it's still there. It takes a while for that to sink in, doesn't it? That is, that is deep Pauline theology, but it's Bible truth. How many of you can say my flesh got me in all kinds of trouble before I knew Jesus? See, it's the flesh that wants to go get drunk. It's the flesh that wants to go get high. It's the flesh that wants to live in immorality. It's the flesh that wants to go into witchcraft and all kinds of different sin. It's the flesh that gets super angry, and it's the flesh that, that, that walks in perversion and all that. It's that flesh. And that fleshly nature, the old man, was crucified when Jesus was crucified. And it's still there. Your old man is still there. I am crucified with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Can we say it together? I'm crucified with Christ. That is my old man, the flesh. Now, and this is one of Paul's constant mantras. He wanted the church to understand this. Uh, Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. How can he say that? Because the flesh is crucified. So you can let sin have dominion over you, but you don't have to let sin have dominion over you as a child of God. Lost people have no choice. Sin is going to have dominion over them. But saved people have a choice. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Now Paul next takes a swing at these Judaizers who have mistaken religious ritual for the kind of righteousness only Jesus could give them. He says, you want to talk about religious perfection? I've got all of you beat. He says, let me tell you about my past. Paul says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. In other words, I've got a lot of bragging rights if I wanted to have them, says Paul. He says, let me give you a few. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, the achievements of the flesh, I'm more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now, here's what he said. I was circumcised the eighth day as an official member of the Hebrew religious community into a nation chosen and set apart by God. So in other words, my pedigree is excellent. Not only that, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That was a, if you were going to be of any tribe uh, of the 12 tribes, you wanted either Judah or Benjamin. And Paul says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Which tribe gave Israel its first king, Saul? 
And it was the Benjamites that stayed true to the throne of David when the kingdom divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. You remember the northern, the 10 tribes went off to become northern Israel and two tribes comprised southern Israel. And it was Judah and Benjamin. And Paul says, I was born of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Benjamite. And that was, that was, uh, that was elite. That was special. So he's kind of going, na 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 na. He said, You want to brag on the flesh? Let me show you the bragging rights I've got if I wanted to be like you. He's, he'd also been a fundamentalist Jew, a Pharisee. Uh oh. And he had been a fanatical Pharisee persecuting the church. It says in Acts 8 3, Paul had made havoc of the church as a Pharisee, as a Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin. Such was Paul's past. None of the Judaizers could argue with his record. They they all wanted that record. He had been one of them in his dedication to the Old Testament, and he had been one of them in his dedication to Moses. If anybody could have glorified in his religion as being a consummately religious individual, it was Paul. But then he sweeps all of his past accomplishments away like so much rubbish, and, and these next two verses are so powerful. I want you to hear the heart of this man. He said, you know what those things mean to me? Those things that were gained to me when I was young, every achievement that I made as a Hebrew and as a Pharisee, and I considered it gain. These things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of how many things, everybody? All things, and count them as rubbish, the King James says, dung, that I may gain Christ. Do you hear his heart? He said, there wasn't anything too big for me to give up to gain Christ, nothing. All those past accomplishments we could call trophies, all those past trophies, all those past blue ribbons, all those achievements. He said, they're they're rubbish to me. They're nothing to me in comparison to knowing and gaining Christ, obeying him, walking with him, giving him my life. Nothing. Let me just tell you some of what he gave up. He gave up his home in Tarsus. He gave up his parents who disowned him because he became a Christian. He gave up all hope of a settled home life, married life. He gave that all up. Married, kids, raising them in the Hebrew religion. He gave it all up. And his ambition to climb the ladder to the top so he could rule the Sanhedrin, and there's no doubt in my mind he would have done that because he was the stuff, he had the stuff that was needed to achieve that. But it goes further. He had given up his health to hardships, whipped, beaten, bruised, bloodied, stoned, and left for dead. Floggings, perils, shipwrecks. He had given up the smile and the favor of the Jerusalem church in order to minister to the Gentile world. He had given up his freedom because now he's in chains writing the Philippians. And he had just given up Epaphroditus by sending him back to Philippi. And one day, we know, he would give up his life. You know, I thought about this today, and I wrote this. For Paul, 
Walking with Jesus had been an endless string of exchanges. Giving up all he'd known in exchange for knowing and obeying Jesus. One after another after another, all the way down to his martyrdom. Giving up his life. And for him, all of it was rubbish, dung, trash, inconsequential to walk with Christ. Where, where are we in comparison to that? Where am I in comparison to that? You know, how often we have to give something up, you know, and, and we complain and we moan and we walk into church like we got run over by an 18-wheeler. We say, what's wrong? Oh, I just had a trial this week. What was the trial? Well, the Lord really convicted me to give up fast food. And it's just really hard. Pray for me. I'm really missing those Whoppers, Big Macs, those fries. Uh, you know, or the Lord really convicted me to get up early in the morning and pray. Man, I'm just struggling. It's just hard. But here's this guy. He's been whipped 39 times across his back five times. He's given up his whole life and everything that revolved around it. And he says, it's just trash that I gave up for Christ. Wow. Paul convicts me. I, I know I say it a lot. I'm not lifting up a man, but he's the greatest Christian that ever lived. And, he, and he's the greatest of the apostles, no question. Now, God made him that. It's not what he did. He would be the first to tell you Christ did it in him. But, but when I look at his life, you talk about an amazing individual. I, to me, to me, I, he just you know, I've read a lot of history. I've read a lot of biographies. I love biographies. And I'm going to tell you, I love biographies on Churchill. And I'm reading right now a book on that has 50 mini biographies in it of great Christians. And Moody and Sankey and, and Whitfield and Wesley and all these great Christian leaders. And I'm reading it. And they're all incredibly impressive. But no one approaches what God worked into Paul. Now, we're about to read more of what God worked into him because his great passion and goal is found at the end of verse 8, end of verse 9. He says, that I may gain Christ. That I may gain Christ. I've given up all these things. Consider them as trash. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, because I can't achieve that. I can't get me saved by the law. But that which is through Say it with me, everybody. Faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. That the minute you look up and you say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I look to you as my Savior and Lord. And you exercise faith toward Christ. A voice is heard from heaven speaking over you saying, righteous. You are righteous. I declare you righteous right now. On the spot. Amen. The righteousness which is from God by faith 
in, in Christ, his son. Now, Paul fully understood the difference between being in Christ or not. I want everybody to say with me, in Christ. Now, that's two of his favorite words. That's one of his favorite phrases, in Christ. Uh, tonight, if you remember anything from this teaching, I want you to remember the phrase, in Christ, because you, you can hardly read a Pauline epistle without coming across the phrase, in Christ. He understood the difference between being in Christ or not. His desire was to be found in him, not in his own works, not in his own righteousness, but in him. I want to be found by God to be in Jesus, in Jesus. Salvation, folks, is a matter not of our works, but of our position, of what spiritual state we're in. The unsaved man is without Christ, without God, without hope. Can I say that again? The unsaved man is without Christ, without God, and without hope in this world. If you are not in Christ, you are without God and you are without hope. You have no hope of eternal life. You have no hope of escaping hell. The saved person, on the other hand, is found in him like Noah was found in the ark. He and his family, and they alone were carried on top of the water that judged and destroyed the rest of the human race. Only those that got into the ark were saved. Only those of us who get in Christ. You know, and Noah would have said, in the ark, in the ark, in the ark. But now that the New Testament has come, it's in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Let me, let me just share a couple of things. Some non-Christians, and I've talked to plenty, argue that they are good, moral people without being a Christian. That God will let them into heaven based on their good life. I've been told, you know, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't run, run with the boys that do. I've never had a traffic ticket. I love my family. I take care of my kids. Um, I, I'm just, I'm just a, a good person. And I understand thinking that way. However, if you think that way, you're deceived. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here we go. You have these people. They argue that they're good moral people without being a Christian. God's going to let them into heaven based on their good life. They also argue to make their own case better. Well, I know some professing Christians that don't live as good a life as I do. In other words, you talk about all this, these Christians. I know some. They don't live as morally or as good a life as I do. And so they top off their argument for their own salvation based on their own good works by comparing themselves to, to less than stellar Christians. But it really comes down to what position you're in or what state you live in. Now, I'm going to work that just for a minute. Let me, let me draw an illustration. Let's say three different people live in the state of Colorado. One lives thousands of feet above sea level in a high mountain. The second person lives right at sea level. And the third person works thousands of feet below sea level in a mine. One way up there in a mountain, one eye level, and one way below in a mine. But they're all still in the state of Colorado. Follow me. It's the same idea with unregeneracy or of being lost in your sins. You might live high up on the mountains of morality 
as an exceptionally good and decent person. Or you might live a very ordinary life. Or you might live down in the dirt of a wicked and vile life. Either way, all three are still in the same state. The state called lost. Are you with me? The state called lost. The state of lostness. That's your condition. Doesn't matter how moral you think you are. You may give all your money to feed the poor. You may help uh, um, um, help feed the homeless. You, you may give all kinds of money to special schools and colleges. You may pay the way for kids to go to college. And, and you may do all kinds of good, good works. But you're still in the state of lostness. And the only way out of lostness is to get out of that state by being born again. You got to turn to Christ. Y'all are looking at me like, are you thinking with me? You got to turn to Christ. Now, once you turn to Christ and you're born again, you get transferred to another state. Paul put it this way. We were in the kingdom of darkness, but now we've been translated into another condition or another position or another state. The kingdom of God's dear son. So when I get saved, not only am I heaven bound, but I just switch states. I just switched kingdoms. God took me out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the devil's kingdom, and he translated me into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's dear son. Amen. So the only way out of lostness is to be born again. It has nothing to do with you achieving it or being a good person. You got to turn to Christ by faith and be declared righteous by God. Once you're saved, you live in another state, the state of salvation. In that state, a person can live on a very high plane of spirituality, or they might be a very average Christian, or they might even be backslidden and living a very carnal life, but all three still live in the state of salvation. They are in Christ. Can we say that phrase again? In Christ. Say it again. In Christ. So there's two kinds of people in the world. You're either in Christ or out of Christ. You're saved or you're lost, period. You're in one state or the other. There's not in-between states. There's no flyover country. You're in, you're in one state or the other, state of lostness or the state of foundness, the state of lostness or the state of salvation. And that's what matters to God. When God looks at us, he says, what state are they in? Are they lost or are they found? This is why Paul says over and over, I want to be found in him. I want to be found in him, in him. Amen. If you're in Jesus tonight, can we give him a hand of praise? Amen. 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 Let me promise you in the days of Noah, you were either in that ark or you were out of that ark. And it made all the difference in the world when that flood began to rise. Now, Paul knew there's no righteousness in himself, no achievements that would make him right with God. He says, not having my own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ. Now, he goes, next on, uh, he goes on next to reveal the three driving passions of his life. And again, we're getting a glimpse, uh, an autobiographical glimpse into what God did in this man. He says, he's I got three driving passions, things that I want more than anything else. Before I share them with you, let me just put a little seed thought in your head. 
what is your driving passion? When you wake up in the morning, what is it that you start thinking about that you really want, that you want to chase, that you want to pursue, that you want to obtain, that you want to make your own? What, what, what drives you? What motivates you? Have you ever thought about that? Because something, everybody has a passion. Some people have a passion to do absolutely nothing. And that's what drives them. They wake up every day. Well, today, my passion is to do nothing. And I'm going to sit here and eat potato chips and watch soap operas and do nothing. As the world turns, all my children are young and restless and so on and so forth. And they watch, and, and so that's their passion to do nothing. Some people get up and say, man, I want to be famous. Some people get up and say, I want to be rich. That's my passion. I want to be rich. I want to drive one of those super nice cars, and I want to live in a great big house, and, and I want to have a bunch of money. That's my passion. Other people get up and just chase the flesh. That's their passion. They're hedonists. They live for the flesh. They live for pleasure. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. That's their passion. But when it comes to a child of God, our passion ought to be Christ. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, Paul had a passion. He had three passions that he names, but they're all really tied up in Christ. Here, here they are in verse 10, that I may know him, that I may know him. Let me give some feeling to it. Here's how he's writing it. He's not saying, that I may know him. No, he's saying, that I may know him. That I may know him. It's eating me up alive. I want to know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Let me touch on each of those. First, that I may know him. That's the driving passion of his life. Notice what he doesn't say. That I may reach huge crowds of people. Or that I may become a famous apostle. Or that I may write two-thirds in the New Testament. That's my passion. No, his deepest desire was that I may know Jesus better and better and better and better every day. I want to know him. I'm in love with him. I want to romance him. I want to know him better this week than I knew him last week. I'm after Jesus. I'm chasing Jesus. I'm in hot pursuit of Jesus. How many Christians would say that today? Well, that touches me. The word know there is the word to progressively come to know something better and better. It doesn't mean to know everything, something all at once. It means I am progressively, ongoingly, day by day, incrementally, step by step, coming to know something or someone better and better and better. Jesus and Paul had something going on. Then he says, after knowing him, or alongside knowing him better, my second passion 
is to know the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead now resides in our mortal bodies. Are you aware of that? Have you ever thought about that? The spirit of God that moved into that tomb and quickened the dead body of Jesus now lives in you and me. The, the, The resurrecting spirit. The resurrecting spirit, the spirit of the living God now resides, lives in, has set up shop. We are his home. We are the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's talking about. That I may know the power, the power, that I may come to know better and better the power of his resurrection It's the resurrection power of Jesus that raised us from the spiritual dead and that daily empowers and enables us to live above the pull of sin and to walk victoriously with Christ. Paul said, I want to know that power. I want to know the power. You know, sometimes I think it would do us good. We talk about doing it at Easter time every year, but it would, it would do us good just to sit and, and really think about Jesus in that tomb, dead, wrapped in grave clothes, dead as dead can be, And God suddenly entered that tomb in the power of his Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ sucked in a breath for the first time in 72 hours. And he was raised from the dead. Think about the power that did that. And what that means, the power of his resurrection. Because that same power is going to move across your body and mine one day and, and take us into glory. If we're still around, walking around, when Jesus returns, we're going to be caught up together with, uh, with him in the clouds. But if we're in the grave, we're coming out of the grave. There's going to be a mass resurrection from cemeteries all over the world. The power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrecting power. The literal power of his resurrection power. God's ability to raise dead things back to life. Paul says, I want to know that. I want to be really familiar with that. And then third, Paul says he wants to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now it gets difficult because I have a hard time going there. I, I, I don't like suffering. Anybody in here like suffering? But here's what he's not saying. When he talks about sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings, he's not expressing some twisted desire to suffer. He's not a masochist. It's rather the willingness to suffer in Christ's cause, which Paul had done in spades. And when doing so, we identify with the Lord and the suffering he endured. The Bible tells us that if we are called to suffer, we are to take it patiently. If we're called to suffer for his name, if we're called to suffer for his name, we're to take it patiently, patiently, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, then our sufferings are united with his sufferings and we suffer with him. Because is Jesus still not still being persecuted? Is he not still being persecuted? He's still being persecuted, is he not? Have you, have you gotten out there and spoken for him lately and discovered people are not thrilled to hear about Jesus? 
It used to be a, a positive if you were a really good middle-class American that went to church. That used to be a positive. You told people, oh, I go to church every Sunday. Oh, that's great. That's admirable. No more. Now, if you say you go to church every Sunday, you're looked at as an oddball. Or, or they're probably fleecing you at church of your money because the whole thing is a scam and a fraud. It's no longer a positive to be a Christian unless you're a liberal Christian, which is no Christian at all. Because then you stand for nothing. You're just calling yourself something that you're really not. And I've been in one or two of those churches, and, and they are shocking. You know, there's whole churches out there now. They don't have to worry about suffering with Jesus and identifying with his suffering because when you go to their services, which I did just experimentally a couple of times, um, if you believe Buddha saves, if you believe Muhammad saves, if you believe you can save yourself, if you think you're safe hugging a tree, that's cool, groovy, hey. Did I say groovy? (laughs) Boy, I just date myself. Edit that out for radio. (laughs) But... But, I mean, I went into a church. This thing was packed. I say it's a church. It wasn't really a church. Folks, we got to get down to where we tell the truth. Some churches that say their churches aren't churches at all because they don't preach Christ. They, they don't teach the word. They're not about walking with the Lord, suffering for his name, dying to their flesh. They're not about any of that. They just have a 501c3 where they have a, a nonprofit entity. But they're not a church. I went into this church, air quotes, And the speaker got up and opened up a book, and he quoted from Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And I, I took the road less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Everybody went. And I thought, what? And then he proceeded to make fun of anybody that thought Christ was the way to salvation. And you could not get a seat in the balcony. This was in Dallas. No, if you're a real church, you understand what I've read tonight about Paul. You understand that I may know him. You understand the passion, that, that, that I may know the power of his resurrection. You understand having a love for Jesus Christ. You understand crucifying the flesh and living a, dis, a disciplined life. You understand these things because you're born again. This is male for you. Amen? He says being made conformable to his death. Any way that Paul could do so, he longed to identify with the Christ he so passionately loved. Now, verse 11, we're going to close. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, I used to read that and go, that sounds like he's not sure he's going to get resurrected. If by any means. That's not what he's saying. He's not expressing doubt here about being one day raised from the dead. He knew he was going to be raised from the dead. He's saying nothing, no barrier, no obstacle, fleshly desires, demon or devil is going to keep me from the great resurrection. I am all in for me to live as Christ and die is gain. And I am looking forward to the day that I hear his voice and he calls me up. Amen. Come on, everybody. Can we stand together tonight? In the word of God, rich in the word of God, so good. Amen. If you think the word of God is good, come on, give him a hand of praise. If you think the word of God is good. Amen.
Amen, amen. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Lord, thank you so much for the power of your word. What a powerful word it is, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the example of this this man that you touched. He was a hater. You made him a lover. He was anti-Christ. Now you made him a lover of Christ. He persecuted your church. Then he became the greatest blessing to the church. Lord, we see the miracle of transformation in Paul. And Lord, what you put in him, we want in us. We want our primary passion to be that I may know him. Can we just lift our hands and say, Lord, help me to have that passion that I may know you, that I may know you more and more and better and better every day, that I may know you and the power of your resurrection. And if need be, Lord, that we would willingly fellowship, share in the sufferings that are that come as a result of standing for you. We don't want suffering, Lord, but if it comes because of our stand for you, then help us to willingly share and identify with you in those sufferings. In Jesus' name. Let's worship just for a